political scientists have increasingly been drawing on a broader interdisciplinary literature on cognition, psychology and physiology. A growing body of literature demonstrates a connection between physiological processes and political attitudes. Individual ideological development depends on a complex interaction between social and biological factors. Yet, the results emerging from this field have yet to be fully integrated into our understanding of public opinion. How and why do individuals develop different political attitudes? As part of the conference Politics, Physiology and Cognition, Advances in Theory and Methods, we interviewed three experts who addressed pressing questions on the relationship between human cognition, physiology and the development of political attitudes. Our first guest is Dr. Amanda Friesen, Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. She is also an adjunct faculty in the Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies program. She is going to spend her next year at the University of Amsterdam to extend her research on gender and political attitudes in the Dutch context. Dr. Friesen presented her paper exploring gender effects in political attitudes using physiology and self-report. So uh, the, my presentation is more of an overview, kind of like a, a state of things um, rather than a, a standalone paper. And uh, effectively, I'm kind of making a call for why people who study physiology and cognition should pay attention to gender and sex. Um, and then additionally, uh, sort of explaining why people who study gender and sexuality might want to think about how physiology could help them untangle Um, some of the social desirability and other socialization uh, types of things that, that can, can cloud whether or not there's truly gender differences or sex differences um, and so on. So the, the talk is, I'm going to start out because I find that even though I work in this world, I've been teaching gender and politics for 10 years, I, you know, uh, I, this is what I read, this is what I do, um, but I often find that people aren't as aware of some of the nuances, so like the difference between biological sex and gender identity. Um, and so I'm gonna spend a little bit of time this afternoon uh, just sort of going through how we think about these various measures and how maybe these different measures can give us better leverage on some of the questions we have. So just asking the traditional, do you consider yourself male or female or a man or a woman, just having that binary um, can be problematic, not just because there are people who are non-binary um, as a gender expression um, or non-cisgender, but also because even people who are cisgender, so they you know, um, identify with the sex that they were born with, could have a variation in how masculine and how feminine they are, right? So for the kinds of things that we're curious about, both from a physiological standpoint and from a political and social behavior standpoint, knowing that there are some women who consider themselves more masculine, gives us uh, more information perhaps about how they might respond to some of the things that we want to ask about. I have a, um, a paper that's already been published where we looked at um, people's uh, physiological, so electrodermal responses to erotic images. So we showed them Um, some heterosexual couples who were naked and making out essentially or kissing uh, and then measured you know their skin conductance response and we found that the the higher um, or the more people responded to these images so everybody responded right so everyone had an arousal to this um, from a skin conductance perspective but that the higher or more that they responded the more likely they were to want to restrict things like abortion or same-sex marriage um, or Uh, wanting abstinence-only sex education. 
So there is something going on where this sort of control of sex or like having this responsiveness is related to these policy preferences. When you follow up and you look by gender, uh, or I guess by sex, because we just asked the binary, um, we find that for women, they rated the erotic images as very negative, and this rating, the self-reported rating, is correlated with their preferences on abortion, same-sex marriage, abstinence-only sex education, but their physiological response, so their non-conscious response to seeing the images, has nothing to do with it. There's no prediction. But among men, both of these measures predict, right? So the more that men respond physiologically to these images, like the stronger they respond, the stronger they feel about these preferences, right? And so if you wouldn't have looked at it by gender, you'd just say, oh, okay, so here are some effects, and it doesn't give you as clear a picture. And when you think about in most countries, nearly every country on Earth, there are um, you know, more men in positions of power and in politics, and oftentimes they're making decisions that have to do with reproductive policy, and to think that there might be some deep-seated um, responses to, to sex that could have something to do with this, I think is a really provocative finding. The results show that the more people respond to erotic images, the more they will want restrictive policies related to sex, such as abortion. However, Dr. Friesen's study shows that men have a stronger physiological response than women. Women's physiological response cannot be used to predict political attitudes. Why? What can be done to understand this gap? Dr. Friesen proposes an approach not only based on the binary men and women division, but also on femininity and masculinity. So this was a, this was a Midwestern adult sample. It wasn't students, it was an adult sample um, for this particular one. Um, and then I'm also working on um, a project that we're just in the pre sort of analysis stages where we're wanting to look at people's uh, bitter taste preferences. So whether or not um, uh, they prefer or dislike bitter tastes and how this might be related to risk-taking behavior. And in this particular uh, study, we are introducing a continuous measure of femininity, femininity and masculinity. And we're interested in knowing because um, the literature has shown that women are more risk averse than men, but like that's just really blunt, men, women. What if we ask people like their sort of gender identity, like the more feminine you are, does that mean that you are even more risk averse? And so then this whole bitter taste piece to it goes with that, you know, or you know, is there no effect with that kind of continuum? So, so I have some new studies I'm going to introduce um, where, we're, where I don't have data yet, <laughs> where we want to, to try to get more variance um, in, in that um, in that area, and then the other study I'm going to talk about is um, a follow-up to a lot of the literature on disgust and politics. So that if you are responsive to disgusting images or um, you respond to a disgusting survey question, you know, that, oh, this would disgust me to eat worms or, or whatever, um, that that has been related to um, some uh, sexual policy attitudes, um, et cetera, and there are these gender differences where women report being more disgusted, but when you actually measure their physiology in looking at disgusting images, there aren't gender differences, mm -hmm. right? So there's where the social desirability, women, oh, ew, gross, I'm supposed to be disgusted, and men say, oh, that's fine, I'm not bothered. But you look and it's even physiologically, and so one of my colleagues here, um, also at the conference, and I are working on a follow-up study where we think that a lot of these questions that have said, you know, would you pick up a dead cat or, 
um, something about would you eat candy that looks like dog poop or, or whatever. It's like, like, what is that? Like, who's doing that? You know, like, where are these coming from? And so we, um, you know, decided to ask questions that, you know, women have to deal with disgusting things in a, you know, in a very stereotypical, like, what women do, but as caregivers, right? So we're asking questions about um, cleaning up your child's dirty diaper or if you have to give a sponge bath to an elderly relative or, you know, these kinds of, so framing it as caregiving to see if this kind of shifts the response because these are things that women have been socialized to take part in and maybe these other disgust items that for 25 years we said oh women are so disgusted by stuff maybe you know isn't necessarily the case so that's again a pre-analysis we haven't collected data yet but we're trying to really like parse out you know maybe a lot of these questions I think that gender and and sex um, affect the questions we ask and the methods we use and what we do and if we don't push on those a bit we're missing a lot of what's happening with social behavior Men and women seem to have different physiological responses. These differences can be partly explained by biology, but other factors such as gender identity, age, class, race, and sexuality could also impact physiology and political attitudes. Dr. Friesen explains why intersectionality is her next frontier and why scholars need to be very careful when using intersectional approaches in biology, psychology, and physiology. When it comes to biology and, and physiology and those kinds of tests, um, evolutionary psychology, um, you want to be very careful um, with both gender and, and race. Um, there is a horrific history of people using these sorts of theories to try to justify or some, you know, like some kind of differences. Um, but I think what has happened in the other direction is that then it's just easier to study a bunch of white people, so that's what we do. And Uh, and I think it, it's harder, it's more expensive, and you have to be more careful to, to study people from underrepresented groups. But we're missing, uh, scientifically it's problematic, because we don't fully understand if these kinds of effects we see are, are universal or if they are, are particularly context or group driven. Uh, so I'm actually working, I have a, a project um, that's it's more personality based um, than physiological, but um, where we're looking at risk-taking and risk, uh, risk behaviors uh, among people. It's a representative sample in the United States. And we find that, for example, among white women, um, if they are low in risk tolerance, which means they don't take risks or they avoid risks, um, they avoid politics, as you may imagine, and then they seek out religion. So they seek out religious communities. And this is a finding that has been in the literature because they want certainty and comfort and, and that kind of thing. Um, but this effect doesn't hold for black women, for African-American women, because the African-American church has actually been a place of empowerment, and it's been a place of community and mobilization. It's, it's, the black church operates differently in the United States. And so this like, key finding of, oh, risk drives women out of politics and into religion, yeah, white women, right? And so there's this like, complete missed finding of how this isn't a universal behavior or a universal effect. And, and I want to start to do more of these kinds of questions about race and class, um, sexual orientation and identity, um, and how um, these various effects can maybe help us find some of these uh, you know, mechanisms that we're not quite sure what's happening, or, or maybe why isn't there an effect when we think there's an effect. Well, did we not only, what tends to happen is people control for it. Well, let's just control for gender. Let's control for race. And instead of saying, well, what if there's an interaction? What if something different is happening with this treatment for these people? Um, and, and, you know, and I, I guess I want to throw out a, um, 
a best practice in that, um, you know, uh, another project that I'm starting about, um, about race in the United States, I'm partnering with an Africana Studies colleague who is African American and has um, a lot of ties to, um, to African American scholars and um, African American leaders in our, in our community. And that, um, you know, I think that's a really helpful thing to do to have you know, if you are a research team that you want to investigate group differences to make sure that your group is diverse, right? That you have men and women, that you maybe have people with different sexual orientations and different racial backgrounds and so on, so that you're not, um, you don't, you don't sort of fly in blind um, without some sensitivities that, that really need to be there. And so, like before, and I think it also would help avoid some of these problems of, um, there are underrepresented groups who are reluctant to participate in university studies for very good reasons because of a very, very horrific past. And so if you can partner with community organizations or partner with scholars from those groups to, um, to try to study these questions, I think that is the best approach. And by doing physiology, um, a person's physiology is affected by environment. It's affected by context. It's, I mean, there's some wonderful work being done in the U.S. about the... The subject of study isn't wonderful, but the work is very good about um, the effects of discrimination over time and how that affects people's elevated cortisol levels and how this affects their health. And, and these are physiological things that aren't genetic, right? These are things that have, that have become biological because of environmental effects. Um, and so I think that it's very, very important to study, but that we should be very careful with it. And, um, and uh, yeah, and sensitive to it, um, but also to not avoid studying altogether because then we operate in this, in this world of, okay, we know a lot of stuff about white people. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, so that's part of what I want to call for today. Biology cannot explain everything. Environment and social life have an actual impact on people's health and biology. That is why studying different groups is important in order to understand various and multiple contexts. Dr. Friesen explains how she will, in the future, work with more diverse social groups and why it is important to observe positive aspects and not only negative behaviors. I think, yeah, one of the things I want to do is, I'm, I, if I'm interested, and, and one of my main interests is just sort of people's orientations around social behaviors, so what makes people political, what makes people religious, mm -hmm. um, why do they participate and talk about it and others don't. Uh, and if I really want to understand that, it's necessary to study various groups and to try to understand what's happening. And so I, I mentioned briefly that um, this next year, this next academic year, I'm going to be in the Netherlands um, and uh, looking at uh, what happens, particularly when you look at gender, um, if women tend to shy away from conflict and, and politics as conflict, um, particularly in the US, which is very polarized, two-party system, it's sort of set up to be combative. What happens when you're in a multi-party system like the Netherlands that is known to be consensus-based, compromise-based, et cetera, are there, there are these same effects, right? Mm -hmm. And so can we look at um, you know, uh, if institutional and system and cultural sorts of factors uh, can have an effect on these personality traits that we sometimes talk about as if they're universal, that you know, women tend to be conflict avoidance. Like, what does that mean? And, and under what conditions and why? Uh, and so I hope to kind of expand to, to different groups and contexts to have a, a more full understanding of this kind of thing. And then also, I mean, I think to think about how we can expand uh, the physiology and, and biopolitics literature uh, to 
groups that have been understudied in a way that's responsible, ethical, sensitive, um, and uplifting. Uh, and that's maybe not a thing that's said very often, but um, I'm working on a new project where um, we're talking to African-American women about uh, the body, the black body, and the black body under attack, and the black body positive, and how basically how they think about their faith and their community networks uh, in relationship to how they think about themselves um, and inhabiting black bodies, which are often um, at odds with culture and the way that people treat African-American women. And, um, and, and you know, part of this came out of recognizing that a lot of, the, again, very good work on criminal justice and the Black Lives Matter movement um, talks about the body under attack, um, you know, uh, the, the bodies of black men um, being under um, surveillance and, and assault. And we want to look at, you know, the, like flip it, like so like let's look at the positive aspect. Like how can we listen to African American women who are this tremendous group of people who have um, unending resilience and strength and, um, you know, like their, their leadership in so many areas of the community and in politics and so on. Um, like how, how can we understand that? How can we, you know, like elevate that voice and that like conversation about how these pot, because I think so often in science we study negatives, right? We study, um, if you're a clinical psychologist, you know, you're studying the, um, uh, the deviations or you're studying what you consider conditions or, or something like that. And, and so like kind of flipping it and saying, well, why, why don't we study like what is going well and how can we better understand that? And I think that that's, for me, that I feel more comfortable in that position than trying to, you know, to understand. Um, uh, there's a lot of people working on oppression <laughs> and that sort of thing, and so I, I kind of want to take this other direction. So that's that's sort of a, a, an area I want to go next, and and I hope to. I have a couple colleagues who work um, in Latino politics, and I'm interested in um, in Latinx um, identity and conversations around the way they think about risk and conflict and, and political engagement. And so I guess, so yeah, that's what it is next for me is to understand more people. On that positive note, we want to thank Professor Amanda Friesen for having taken the time to speak with us. Thank you everyone for listening. For the CSDC podcast, I am Esther Armagnac. See you next time.